Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's going to be our text for this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 255. Uh, And as you're turning there, I want to just share a, a quick little story with you. So someone I know got a brand new car a little while ago. This is a very pretty looking car, a really nice color, a beautiful interior, and that amazing new car smell that we all love. However, not too long after getting this new car, they began to make it their home, essentially. So they started to throw everything in it. Anytime they had fast food, the garbage remained in the car. Clothes got thrown in there. Everything was just put into their car. They lived out of their car, essentially. And and very effectively, by doing this, they got rid of that beautiful smell that once permeated the car, uh, that kind of destroyed the interior of the car as well. Not only that, but then they got in a couple of small accidents. Nothing major, but, you know, they, they damaged the bumper. They scraped the side of the car and messed up the front of it. And once, what was once a beautiful-looking car uh, was now, in essence, trashed from a, from a physical viewpoint of looking at the car. However, this really didn't seem to, to bother the owner as the car still ran perfectly fine. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, well, the car no longer looked new, certainly didn't look new anymore. They, these were relatively small details in the grand scheme of things that did not have an effect on the overall function of the car. The car still turned on, still turned off, did everything it was supposed to. And their, sta- their, their uh, stance was essentially, as long as oil changes are taking place, as long as we're taking care of regular maintenance, why worry about all the details? And I think that Sometimes we do well to take that same approach with certain passages in Scripture. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating to ignore context or anything like that. But what I am saying is that instead of getting caught up in all the small things in a passage, all the small details, sometimes we need to just stop and appreciate the grand theme, the grand scheme, and the overall picture that's being portrayed. And I think one such passage that we would do well to to do this with would be 2 Samuel chapter 22. It could be very easy for us to get caught up in the weeds trying to dissect each of these 51 verses in here. Uh, However, as somewhat of a, a Hebrew scholar myself, I want to argue that today let's just skip over some of the Hebrew tenses, skip over some of the Hebrew parsing. If you know me, you know that I'm very okay with that. And at the risk of losing some precision, let's take a broad brush approach to this song of thanksgiving from King David. This is really a beautiful song. And if we overcomplicate things, I think we lose some of that beauty. So let's go ahead and and read this song now. Uh, Since it is a song and and not a narrative, I do think it makes sense to read it in its entirety. So it is a little bit longer. Like I said, it's 51 verses. But go ahead and follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you save me from violence. 
I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them. Lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father, as we seek to unpack the truths in this song, we pray that we, like your servant David, would be moved to worship as we recount your wonderful deeds. We thank you, God, that you are our God, and we pray that you would be with us now. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this song, as well as David's last words in the next chapter, mark the final songs that are sung by David. And this song actually parallels Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, which we just heard a few moments ago as, as Brother Brad read that passage. And it parallels Hannah's song of praise, not Brad's jokes. But what is interesting is these two songs really serve as the bookends, so to speak, of the entire story of First and Second Samuel. And they help to really establish the major themes of the book. And as we hear in this song, which is also paralleled in Psalm chapter 18, as well as Hannah's song, we see that the main champion is none other than the Lord Almighty. And David urges us not to miss this point. Yahweh, the Lord, is the hero of Samuel. David's song is really a reflective piece as David recounts the many ways that the Lord has saved him from his enemies. And it is this heading, David's song of deliverance, which is the lens we are to read this psalm with. As one commentator puts it, David's history could have been narrated as that of a great and powerful king. This chapter, however, is concerned that it should be understood as the action of a great and powerful God. It is with this in mind that we get our transformative truth for this passage. The one worthy of all praise is Yahweh, the great deliverer. The one worthy of all praise is Yahweh, the great deliverer. He is the hero. But there's many who would object to this, perhaps even some of you. Seemingly every single time I preach, I make the point to say that Jesus is the hero of the story. I I even said it just last week. And so you may be asking yourself, so how is it now that Yahweh is the hero? Well, I'm very glad you asked. We must be careful not to drive a wedge between Jesus and Yahweh, or between God the Father and Jesus. Because if we were to do that, it would lead to a division of the triune God. Heath Thomas reminds us that to be Christocentric is necessarily to be God-centered. Another way to put it is to say, to preach Christ will mean to preach the fullness of God, including the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when Hannah and David exalt Yahweh, In all of his glory, they are by necessity exalting Christ because Jesus is always there in the Godhead. And it is through Christ that Yahweh's redemptive plan and work are fulfilled. Remember that Christ came down to earth to do the will of the one who sent him, as John 6.38 tells us. And David's praise for Yahweh and Christ are all throughout this song. And I believe in this song we see five separate things. We see the deliverance of the Lord the righteousness of the servant, the splendor of the Lord, the victory of the king, and the reign of the Messiah. So as we come to our first point, the first thing we see is the deliverance of the Lord. This song starts off with David rightly praising his Lord as his deliverer. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. In these first two verses alone, we see 11 personal pronouns with the uses of my and I. And in fact, I actually went through because I was curious and I counted all of the uses of me, my, and I 
And in 51 verses, there are a total of 97 first-person pronouns. There are 97 personal pronouns used. Don't mishear me. I didn't say there are 97 preferred pronouns. 97 personal pronouns. Big difference. And the reason that there are so many personal uh, pronouns that David uses is because David knew that he worshipped a personal God. This song is not a recounting of a God that he doesn't know. Yahweh is his God. Through David's entire journey from shepherd boy to now king of Israel, Yahweh has always been my God to David. This is a beautiful truth for us to consider. We touched on this last week with God responding to David's prayer for answers, and we saw that we serve a very personal God. And if you are a follower of Christ, then David's God is your God. In fact, if you are one of God's children, then you can take that transformative truth that I gave you in the bulletin, and you can cross out the great deliverer, and you can put in my great deliverer. That's pretty incredible to think about. The same uh, God that delivered David over and over again promises to deliver us from the clutches of our enemy as well. It, of course, does not mean that we won't endure suffering on earth. It's actually quite the opposite. As we know, through our study of David, he certainly has suffered quite a bit. But we do know that he will deliver us from this wicked world, that he will deliver us from the devil, and that one day we will reign with him for all of eternity. Yahweh is David's God, and he is our God. And that's why there's a parallel song to 2 Samuel 22 in Psalm chapter 18. And that psalm was written for God's people to sing, because Yahweh is the believer's confidence. He's not a source of our confidence. He is our confidence. And he is our great deliverer. Consider the many ways in just these two verses that Yahweh delivered David. He protected him from external threat. He's referred to as the rock and fortress. He protected him from the darts of the enemy. He is the shield. He protected and hid David from harm. He is a refuge. He is the one who anointed David for his good purposes. He is the horn of salvation. In all these ways, the Lord has been David's great deliverer. As we all know, David has seen his fair share of enemies. I mean, his own father-in-law wanted him dead and did everything in his power to try and kill him. And in this, David learned that the Lord delivers. David has encountered countless enemies. Nations like the Philistines with giants roaming around with a personal vendetta against David, trying to kill him at any chance they get. We talk about a big problem. And in this, David learned that the Lord is his salvation. David was given two separate opportunities to actually take matters into his own hands and kill King Saul. But in this, he learned that revenge is not his, but is in the hands of the Lord. He learned from his encounter with Nabal that God is the one who rights wrongs. In this, he also learned that the Lord is the one who saves him from violence. As if you recount that story, David actually wanted to kill Nabal for how he had treated his men. But the Lord prevented that through the, through the sending of Abigail to him. And in verse 4, David solidifies his praise. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. David has learned many lessons through his trials. And I would argue that through those very trials, it is through those trials that the Lord has used to sanctify his servant. I think the application is clear. God often uses trials in our lives to draw us closer to him in a similar way that he used David's trials. 
It's through our trials that we grow closer to Christ. Through our trials where oftentimes we grow the most. It's oftentimes when we hit rock bottom, when we feel completely helpless. In those times is where God meets us. One of the many times where the Lord met David was in a cave as David was on the run from Saul, literally fleeing for his life. And at one of the lowest points of David's life, he writes in Psalm 57, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send down from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The Lord met David where he was at. Let that be an encouragement to you today. If you're going through a trial in your life right now, know that God has not turned a blind eye to you. Whatever it may be, perhaps you've lost a job or you've lost even a loved one, whatever it is, know that God has not abandoned you. If you are in him, know that he is the God of all comfort and cling to him. Not only is he Lord of all, he is a tender God who is intimate with his people, and he sympathizes with us. Let this quote from Mac Harris be an encouragement to you today. It's a bit longer, but pay attention to what he says. In the most real, intimate, and loving way possible, Jesus promises to walk alongside us every step of the way. God not only understands our pain, he endures it with us. Even more than the best earthly friend or loved one, our God shoulders our burdens, weeps with us in our grief, and sits with us in our sorrow. When we need a tender touch, he draws near. When we want to curl up in isolation, he sits with us, holding our hand, as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm seventy-three, twenty-three. When we want to vent to someone who understands, he lends a listening ear. Jesus will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up in yours. End quote. What a God we serve. And now verses 5 through 7 take this image of God's salvation from personal distress even a step further. In these verses, the Lord delivers at a cosmic and eternal scale. David says that death, destruction, and Sheol threaten to swallow him whole. However, what did he do? Verse 7, I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. The Lord's response to David is deliverance. In his distress, David cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears. And what happens next is pretty spectacular. Essentially, the world becomes unglued, becomes unhinged. Look at verses 8 through 16. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Not exactly what we expect from a sweet hour of prayer. The Lord both hears and he comes. 
Dale Davis comments, when he comes, it is as if Mount Sinai happens all over again. Yahweh is irate that his servant stands in such affliction, and so he comes in blazing anger, shuddering majesty, and world-convulsing power to rescue him. We've all heard that idiom before, I'd move heaven and earth for you. Well, the Lord truly does move heaven and earth for those who are his. As I was thinking of this, I actually thought of that, that kid's book. It was written years ago called Guess How Much I Love You. You guys know? You guys familiar with that book? Maybe. There's, anyways, it's a kid's book that I, my, uh, my mom used to read to me all the time. It's this book between a, a, a mama rabbit and a baby rabbit. And they're kind of going back and forth trying to show how much they love each other. So a little baby rabbit starts off by spreading out his hands and saying, you know, I love you this much. And then the mama rabbit does the same because her arms are longer. And then, you know, they start seeing trees. Like, well, I love you as, as tall as that tree. And, and as the book continues, it just gets more and more. And, and eventually the rabbit, the, the baby rabbit, looks and sees the sky and is like, you know, there's nothing further than the sky. So he says, Mama, I love you as far as the sky. And, and as uh, he, the baby goes to bed, the, the mama lays down. The book, ends, he whisper, uh, the, the book ends with the mom laying down and whispering to the baby, I love you, to the moon and back. And as I just kind of thought of that book, guess how much I love you? I was just thinking, I was like, you know, we can't answer that question with the Lord. We have, we have no idea how much he truly loves us. And that's why we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that, that he would give a, a wicked wretch a, a ransom uh, for his treasure. I, I definitely just botched that, but, but hopefully you know that, that hymn. <laughs> but, um, but how deep the Father's love for us, um, and, and he truly does move heaven and earth for those who are his. And David now summarizes his deliverance in verses 17 through 20. And the reason Yahweh did this is because David had prayed for help, as we see in verse 7. However, verse 20 actually gives us another reason why the Lord has delivered his servant. He brought me out, it says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Did you catch that? God delighted in his servant, David. This connection has to do, of course, with the fact that David was a man after God's own heart, as 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen tells us. This is also the fact that, because that David is Yahweh's chosen leader. David has found favor in the Lord's sight. And when you consider some of the sins that, that David has committed, some of the sins that he has been caught up in, you see that it is only by the sheer mercy of the Lord. And this actually brings us into our second point now, the righteousness of the servant. So if you look at your outline, you'll notice that there's actually a question mark on this second point, and that's intentional. Because as we look at verses 21 through 27, they do seem to stand out as at least a little bit strange. So let's go ahead and read those now. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. They seem strange. These verses seem strange because this is written by David. And at this point, we, we know the story of David. And yet, in these verses, he says some seemingly crazy things. He says he is righteous and that he has clean hands. He says that he has kept the way of the Lord, 
that he was blameless and sinless, that he's faithful and pure. And knowing what we know about David, how can he, how can he make these claims? I mean, is this, a, is this an example of how there's no guilty people in prison? I mean, did he forget about how he treated Bathsheba? Or how about how he treated Uriah? However, David is telling the truth. It can be tempting to, to read this song and think that David is just speaking vaguely about his spiritual state, but the opposite is actually true. David is speaking about ways where he has been innocent, where he has been clean-handed and sinless. And we certainly know of those instances as well. We think of his dealings with Mephibosheth, how we, talk, we touched on it earlier, how he's spared Saul's life twice. Certainly his battle with Goliath comes to mind. So there are many ways in which David can say that he followed the Lord. Think of the amount of times that he inquired of the Lord. Instead of taking matters into his own hands, thinking through on his own, he, he asked the Lord, what should I do in this situation? And so the point is that he's not just making general statements about his spiritual state, but rather he's identifying specific instances of faithfulness to the Lord. Still, though, these statements carry an ironic twist to them. As one commentator puts it, in the book of Samuel, the claim is that David received the reward of the kingdom because he refused to seize it. Yet even as this is highlighted, placing this poem after the events concerning Uriah is an ironic reminder of what David has also done. There's a positive statement by and about David in an ironic criticism of him. Criticism that knows David has been both punished and forgiven. So David can praise God for his faithfulness to the Lord. This is good and, and this is absolutely right. David has exercised faithfulness to the Lord. Of course, this is only through the strength that God alone provides. But we also see in turn that at every turn, it is the Lord's faithfulness that stands out. It's not the righteousness of David that is the primary focus, but the Lord's righteousness. And it is the righteousness of Yahweh to which David clings. And this is David's only hope. His only hope. And in this way, these verses point us to the gospel, to the good news of Christ. Only those of us who recognize our sinfulness and run to the Lord and Christ's righteousness through his sinless life, death on the cross, and resurrection from the grave will be saved. And there's another word for this kind of people, the afflicted. Like the tax collector in Luke 18, 13, who cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The afflicted are those who know their desperate need for the Lord. And this is the term that David uses in verse 28. So if you look at your translation, you look at the Pew Bible, the ESV actually uses the word humble instead. But KJV, the King James Version, uses the word afflicted. And I think that's a, a better word to use here. God saves the afflicted. God saves the ones who know that they are not strong, who are not proud, the ones who know that they are desperately sinful. He saves those who are absolutely and utterly dependent on the Lord. Or as James puts it in James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As we continue, the next thing we see is the splendor of the Lord. So look at verses 32 through 34. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. These verses remind us of the incomparable splendor 
of the Lord. He is once again described as a rock. However, this comparison is taken further to the form of a question. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? In verse 32, David actually uses two names of God. Yahweh and Elohim. This is in the original Hebrew. Now, I know I said we wouldn't be looking in depth at Hebrew today, but I made one exception because this is important to see. Yahweh is the covenant name of the Lord. To know Yahweh is to know the covenant God of the patriarchs of Israel and to know the God of David. Elohim is the name used in context when creation is mentioned. And so David combines these two names to show that he is the God of creation and he is Lord of the covenant. There's no other being that can claim the power of deity. There is no other. And David's words here express the majesty and the sheer otherness of Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh is holy, holy, holy. He is completely set apart in every way. There is no God but the true God, and he has a name, Yahweh Elohim. Consider the splendor of the Lord. Also consider the victory of the king. Verses 35 through 49 show how Yahweh enables David to destroy all of his rivals. The Lord strengthens and protects David in verses 35 and 36, where we read, He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. He gives him stability and stamina in order to pursue, overtake, and defeat his enemies. And the picture that we get here is, is one of that, that David's enemies are essentially on the run, and now David just has to go and, and finish them off. As we saw that there was an irony present in David's righteousness, we also see that there is a certain irony in David's victories as well. Especially as you consider the, the context of 2 Samuel chapters 19 through 21, which we see enemies popping up left and right. Although David has defeated his fair share of enemies, it appears that they keep coming back again and again. Not only that, but even as we saw last week, giants continue to hang around, always posing a threat to David's kingdom. Nevertheless, we see that the Lord remains in control, and he remains the hero of the story, as he is the one who strengthens David for battle again and again. Look at verses 40 through 46. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. All that David has accomplished, he has accomplished only through the Lord's power. As Dale Davis points out again, David's kingdom rests on Yahweh's muscle. The Davidic Messiah is king over Israel, but David mentions something more. The Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, is king over all nations. And this brings us to our final point now, the reign of the Messiah. These last two verses, and even into the first few verses of chapter 23, present to the reader the Messiah's eternal reign. Although the Lord trains David's hands for war, and we've certainly seen plenty of war in the life of David, the closing statement in 2 Samuel 22 is not that of a warrior. David closes this psalm with praise. 
Look at verses 50 and 51. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This final image of David is that of a worshiper. This is so beautiful. He is the leader who praises the Lord and draws all other nations to sing the praises of God as well. The reign of the Messiah, David tells us, is not marked by war, but rather it is marked by praise. The personal way that David began this song of praise, he now closes with praise. David sings the praise of Yahweh's name. There is power in the name of Yahweh. As David calls on the name of Yahweh, the true God delivers. And as David appeals to the Lord, the Lord answers. So David draws all nations to celebrate and revere the name of the Lord who is above all others, Yahweh. The one worthy of all praise is Yahweh, the great deliverer. And he is revered because of the covenant kindness and the loyalty that he shows to David and his dynasty. And this last statement confirms the Davidic covenant that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord will not abandon the dynasty of David. They may rebel and they may be unfaithful, but the Lord will discipline them and bring them back. And if you're familiar with David's descendants, you know that that is exactly what happens. As his descendants go from bad to worse, the Lord disciplines them, but there is always, every time you read about it, there is always a glimmer of hope because the Lord has not wiped out the line of David. He has done this because he will not abandon the dynasty of David. And it is the Davidic Messiah to come, who will come, to who Yahweh will use to bless the world. And this last verse reminds us that David's kingdom and the promises of a future kingdom do not depend on the lucky breaks of history or the chances of history. Because God's kingdom rests on God's promises, we can know that it is sure. It is, it is done. This certainty is needed for the afflicted because that is where our hope lies. We said earlier that Yahweh is our confidence. Yahweh is also our hope. That's why we've sang many times, even here at church, Christ is our hope in life and Christ is our hope in death. It is God's power that will establish his kingdom and that is very good news for us. God's promise is sure because God will bring it to pass. Not because of our efforts, not because of advances in technology, advances in AI, hard work, or anything of the sort, but because of God alone. It is his power that guarantees the kingdom. And it is because of this that he then receives all of the glory and all of the praise. He is our great deliverer who is worthy of all praise. Let's pray to him now. Father, we give you all the praise. May our hearts cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 115.1, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would use this message to strengthen your church. We thank you for the confidence that we have in you because you are a faithful God and you are trustworthy in all of your ways. We pray that you would encourage us with the hope found only in the gospel. I want to pray for anyone here who does not know you, would you use this message to convict their hearts even now in this moment? We pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of your word and that they too would be able to experience the same hope that we have. Lord, we also pray that you would be with us as we take communion in just a couple of moments. We pray that we would humble ourselves knowing that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. 
Help us to recognize the areas in our lives where we have been unfaithful and give us the strength to ask for forgiveness in those areas, knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We pray that you would be with us now and that you would be honored now. It is in your name we pray. Amen.